I have the privilege this morning of preaching to you from John chapter 2, starting in verse 23 and going through chapter 3, verse 12. So if you would turn there and we'll read from God's Word. And as we'll talk about in a second, what John is doing in this passage is he's getting down to the heart of an issue. So we could say that this passage is not the only, but is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. That's not to elevate one Scripture over the other, but when we see how our Lord responds to this man in this passage, we want to pay careful attention to the words that he chooses. So in verse 23, Now when he, that is Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And if you're anything like me, the last couple years, really my growing up years, have been very confusing in the church. 10, 15 years ago, there was somewhat a revival of Christian thinking. People were interested, and they were gripped by Christianity. You had books that were coming out about the love of God, books coming out about the Spirit of God, a real focus on Reformed theology, and a real focus on what it means to be a Christian. And people by the droves seemed to be coming to Christ. And there, there were these key figures 
in the church that were preaching these messages and they were writing these books. And 10, 15 years later, fast forward to today, many of those leaders have left orthodoxy, have began teaching false doctrine, or have altogether left the church. And so the question that, if you're anything like me, you may be asking is, what happened? How could you go from serving the kingdom so well and so prominently to all of the sudden leaving it altogether and having no care whatsoever about the kingdom? These people, they believed the gospel. They taught the gospel. They lived lives that looked Christian. But somehow or another, they left the church. So the issue has to be deeper. And if you would turn to Matthew 13. Having grown up hearing or just kind of seeing this in my lifetime, I've had a lot of time to think about this and to read scripture and see if our Lord had anything similar in his teaching. And Jesus is speaking to large crowds in Matthew 13. This is right after the leaders of Israel reject Christ. And Jesus says that no more signs would be done for them. So in chapter 13, he starts speaking to them in parables. And in verse 3, he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the people didn't understand this, and neither did the disciples, so they came to Jesus and they asked. And in verse 18, Jesus explains this parable to the disciples. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And on reflecting on that passage, something that I realize is for the longest time, there have only been two categories of people in my mind. There are those who say they accept the gospel, those who say they believe the gospel, and those who don't. 
You have Christians and those who aren't. And while that distinction is true, while those who truly believe the gospel are believers and are Christian, and those who do not truly believe the gospel are not, Jesus does not just give two categories of people, immediately rejecting the gospel or immediately accepting the gospel. He gives four. The first immediately rejects. The second immediately accepts with joy, just like the third that accepts. But the middle two over time are the ones who fall away. And I realize in my own life, because of my ignorance and not understanding this passage, this was a very complicated reality and led to a lot of confusion for me. Because today we don't just have the question, why don't these people accept the gospel? We have the question, why did these people who used to teach the gospel not teach the gospel anymore? And so in John, John is the last living apostle at the time he writes this. And I believe John, which is very characteristic of him in this gospel, is trying to explain something. And he's trying to explain it very clearly. Because rather than giving the parable of the sower, parable of the wheat and the tares, what John does is he gets to the point. And he gets to the heart of the issue. At this point in church history, I'm sure that John had been asked several times, why are these people leaving the faith? You see, that's a question in 1 John. And he says, they were never of us. And so John wants to be helpful to us. John wants to explain why the good soil is the true soil. What's different about the characteristic of the good soil that sets it apart from the other three? Because the good soil, the thorny soil, and the rocky soil all accept the gospel up front. So what's so different about the good soil? And I believe our passage is meant to help us understand it. So, in our passage, we'll have one, the fleshly man. Verses 23 through verse 3. Verses 4 through 8, we'll have an explanation of the spiritual man. And then verses 9 through 12, we'll have the expectation of the Son of Man. So, looking at verse 23 more closely in John chapter 2, Christ was in Jerusalem, and he was at the Passover. And this was an incredibly important feast for the Jews. This was a time where not only would they celebrate what happened in Egypt, where they would have the Passover meal, they would eat the Passover lamb. They would drink the salt water, remembering all of the miraculous things God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. They also looked forward. Because if you read the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt becomes a type 
of the future exodus of God's people. And at the end of Old Testament revelation, you have Malachi, who says that Elijah is going to come, and he's going to make things right. And he's going to prepare a way for the Messiah. And so at Passover to this day, in our day, Jews will leave their doors open while they celebrate the Passover feast. And they'll put a glass of wine on the edge of the table. And that's, they're not expecting somebody to come in, but it's representative of waiting on Elijah to come. So that he'll come after a long journey and make things right, which will lead to Messiah's coming. And so during Passover from this time to now, Passover has not only been a celebration of what has taken place, but a looking forward to what would. And so he was in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, at Passover, one of the greatest celebrations in Judaism. And during this time, in Jesus' day, there were high messianic expectations. Jesus was not the only one who said he was the Son of God. Jesus is the only Son of God. But during this time, people were popping up everywhere with messianic traditions, messianic expectations. And so much like they were believing in false messiahs, they saw Jesus, and because of the signs he had done, they believed in his name. And I want to point out something. In the text, when it says they believed in his name, John means to say they believed in Jesus Christ. That's not true belief, because John's going to explain that for us and where that comes from. But when he uses the word believe, it's the same word he'll use later on. So this is significant, because Jesus' response to these men is not one of, just come to me, just come sit at the table. You believe in my name, you think I'm the Messiah, just come sit down. You're a Christian. You're a believer. Verse 24, he says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the heart of the problem. You can replicate many things. If you're determined enough, you can make it look like you're a better person than you were last week. If you are determined enough, you can leave a life behind that you used to live. I used to work in restaurants, so I know, I know many people who, who would come out of drug addiction or, or who would come out of some kind of addiction. And they would have the determination to leave that behind. That did not make them Christian. In fact, many of them were determined not to be Christian, even though they had left that life behind. Because the purpose of John saying these things is not saying, these are the things you have to do to become a Christian. The purpose of this is to show that Jesus, as God, understood that in man there was an issue. And it's not what a man does that ultimately destroys him. It's something within man that destroys him. 
And so, chapter 3, verse 1, we meet a man. Now there was a man. One of the all men that Jesus knew. This man's of the Pharisees, and he's a ruler of the Jews. And the Pharisees are very important people during Jesus' time. Um, compared to the Catholic Church, these would be like the cardinals. These, these would be the priests walking around town who had high authority and high importance. Pharisee came from a tradition during the intertestamental period whenever the Jews took back Jerusalem. And they set this sect apart to be holy to God. And Pharisee literally means set apart ones or separate ones. And so when the people looked to Pharisees, they expected to see men who followed the law. And Pharisees weren't all bad. If you read some of the Gospels, they try to protect Jesus at times. They come to him and they say, the, the people from Herod are looking for you. You should run away. But as we know, there were many Pharisees who believed in their own righteousness and their own ability to come to God. This was the whole point of their life, was a religious devotion. They loved Scripture. It was the air they breathed. They memorized Scripture. They had it down-packed. They loved God. Did they truly love God? No, theologically. But would they tell you that they loved God? Yes, their whole life was devoted to Him. Did they love Scripture? Did they know it first? Did they love it? Yes, they loved Scripture. Did they hold true the promises of the Bible? Yes. In fact, Scripture says that the Pharisees were more Orthodox Jews than the Sadducees were. The Pharisees believed in Scripture. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says, do what they say, just not as they do. And at the very least, that has to mean that in large part, the Pharisees' teaching was not all off base. So he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin. This is what I was meant to say now. This would be like one of the cardinals. So he's set apart, but he's also a ruler. There were 6,000 Pharisees in first century Israel, but there were only 70 rulers of the Jews, which were the Sanhedrin. They're comparable to the Supreme Court and the Senate of the United States, kind of put together. And these 70 men were charged with ruling over the people because of their incredible knowledge of the Scripture. So these were men of high esteem. And on top of that, who is Nicodemus in particular? Verse 10 tells us he's the teacher of Israel. He was famous. Tradition tells us that Nicodemus attracted hordes of people in Jerusalem. That he was one of the richest men, if not the richest man, in first century Israel. So this is a man of great importance, and he comes to Jesus by night. He comes to him at a time when his fame won't attract crowds, whenever he'll be able to sit down and have a conversation, and nobody else will see him. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi. He calls him a teacher. We know 
we the Pharisees, we the Sanhedrin, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you remember in chapter 2, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. Nicodemus, like the many, comes to Christ and he says, we see the signs. We believe that you are a teacher sent from God. And he's being very polite. He's not coming to Jesus and, and jabbing at him. As the teacher in Israel, he comes to Christ and he's, this, this is probably the only person he's ever come to to ask a question. Nicodemus, as the teacher in Israel, has never had to stoop down or to see as equals another teacher. And he comes and he says, we know you're a teacher. We know that God is with you. And in verse 3, this is very important. Jesus does not say thank you. Jesus does not say, oh, wonderful Nicodemus, teacher of Israel, how great it is that you're here sitting with me. It's almost as he interrupts him and he gets right down to the point. Because remember, Jesus knew all men and he knew what was in man. He says, truly, truly. It's where we get the word amen from. Truly, truly. Incredibly important. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cuts right to the heart of Nicodemus' problem. Nicodemus didn't ask Jesus a question. But Christ, knowing Nicodemus, knowing he was there with some sort of eschatological kingdom expectation, he wants the kingdom, he's lived his whole life for the kingdom, and he comes to Jesus and he says, you're a teacher from God, and Jesus interrupts him and says, you're not born again. And he says, you're seeing the signs, you think you're seeing the kingdom of God. But if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the language of this, born again, throughout the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, verse 31, it says, He who comes from above, that's the same word, born again, chapter 19, and you don't have to turn here, but chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And then verse 23, talking about the tunic of Christ. It was woven in one piece from the top. And so this word throughout the Gospel of John is probably best translated from above. Born from above. Chapter 1, verse 13, born of God. Born from God. But it's ambiguous. If you, if you notice, your translation probably doesn't say born from above. <laughs> it says born again. And we can trust the translators because the term that they're translating is mysterious. And that's Jesus' whole point. He's somewhat giving Nicodemus a riddle. As the teacher in Israel, from one teacher to another, they often spoke in parables and in riddles. 
And so Jesus steps into that world and he says, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, he, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I, I think that this is important whenever we're sharing the gospel with people. I don't think we're to interrupt everybody. Jesus knew all men. This isn't the only way he evangelized men. But Jesus, in his omniscience, knew that Nicodemus was not a believer. He knew that the issue in Nicodemus was not something else he needed to learn, something he needed to write down, some act he needed to do. He knew that what Nicodemus needed, just like everyone else needs, is to be born from above, to be born a second time. And whenever we're preaching the gospel, whenever we're evaluating our own heart, it's important for us to understand that we can play the game, that we can look like Christians, we'll be frustrated internally. But if we are not born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus confused says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is not dumb. <laughs> he is the teacher in Israel. He's not considering the, this crass suggestion. He's somewhat mocking Jesus' statement. Because when a man is born, he starts again. Or he starts for the first time. And here you have a man who has lived his whole life being devoted to his religion. He loves his religion. He's worked hard in his religion. He's done much for what he sees as the kingdom of God. Some of the Pharisees even saw themselves as the only ones who were going to receive the kingdom. And they saw everybody else in Israel as cursed because of how holy they believe themselves to be. Nicodemus isn't considering being born from his mother again. Nicodemus is staying in that parable and in that riddle as a teacher. And he's saying, can a man go through life anew? Can a man really start over? Can I, the teacher of Israel, renounce everything that I know and start new in whatever this kingdom of God Jesus is talking about? Is it really just a matter of being born? Is it really something that I can't control? Is there something that has to happen to me in order that I would inherit the kingdom of God? This would be foolishness to Nicodemus. All his life he's taught that if you do this, if you live like me, if you come to church, if you're a member in church, if you love the church, if you love scripture, then you can earn the kingdom of God. Then you can earn Christianity. You can earn salvation. 
And what Jesus is saying is, you can't do anything. This is something that must happen to you. And to Nicodemus, this would be nonsense. And so Jesus answers again with somewhat a riddle, but he's trying to help Nicodemus out. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what does it mean to be born again? Born of water and the Spirit. There's a lot of commentary on this. There's a lot of people who will try to give an explanation of what water means, and I, I'm not charged with giving you all their opinions. I'm charged with giving you the Word of God. Water in the Old Testament was used for cleansing. It symbolically represented what God was doing on an individual. When a man stepped into water, they understood that God was covering his sin. There was nothing magical in the water. There was nothing spiritual about the water. But water in the Old Testament was always associated with being washed by God, with being made clean by God. More than that, that cleansing was put together with the work of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. But before we go to the Old Testament, I think it's important that we understand what John is saying. Because I think there's significance to what John is saying about water in the Gospel of John. Chapter 3 is in a section of Scripture from chapter 1 to 4. Specifically, chapter 2 to 4, there's what's known as a chiasm, which goes, it's kind of like a circle. You have the outside, and you have this dot traveling from the outside closer and closer to the inside, and then further and further to the outside. And so it becomes this symmetry of a story. And I'll show you that just as an overview. Chapter 2, it begins with the wedding at Cana. Then Jesus cleanses the temple and he talks about the Jewish religion. Chapter 3, he explains the new birth. Then there's a, a little dialogue in the center. Then it backs up. To baptism, and then Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman, and he talks to her about the Jewish religion, and then at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 46, he's back in Cana, and there's this movement from Cana, the Jewish religion, being made new, conversation, made new. Jewish religion, and back in Cana. And in this, water plays a significant role. Every time you see water in the Gospel of John, it's actually water. That's a revolutionary idea. <laughs> but when you see the word water in the Gospel of John, 
somewhere in the story, there's always water. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing with water, and it's compared to the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus would bring. In John chapter 2, there are Jewish purification jars of water that Jesus turns into wine. In chapter 3, Jesus says, if you're not born of water in the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God and just place a pin in that. In verses 22 through 36, you have Jesus and John baptizing in water. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman is at the well where there is water. But every time you see water, Jesus is using that water to point to a spiritual reality. And this should start to sound like baptism and how we practice it. The water doesn't save, the water doesn't regenerate you, but it points to that which God has done in you. And so in the context of John, what does it mean to be born of water in the Spirit? What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? He recognizes that Nicodemus is unwilling to go to John the Baptist and to renounce his Pharisaism, to go and make a way for the Messiah, to go and say, just like a Gentile, I need to be baptized. My heritage won't save me. My works won't save me. My teaching in Israel, my fame won't save me. The only thing that will save me is God. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is the last thing Nicodemus wanted to hear. To go to some wild man in the wilderness, just like all the Gentiles, and to be baptized like a Gentile and renounce his whole life for the sake of expressing some work God had done in him would be unthinkable. And that's the condition of the human heart. Because we think that we can have what we used to have and just add on what God is going to do in our heart. We think that, well, I've, I've been in church. I love the church. I've lived my whole life. My, my dad's a pastor. But that is the same work that Nicodemus brought to Christ, and Christ said, none of that is good enough. And it's not an issue of what you can do. It's not even an issue of trying to convince God that you're a believer, or trying to convince God that you believe the gospel, because the issue is the new birth. If you're not born again, if you're not made new, if the Spirit of God has not moved on you, there is nothing that you can bring to God. Because the nature of the new birth, he explains in verse 7 and 8, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The wind isn't something you can control. You can't tell the wind where to blow. You can't beg the wind to blow, especially through Georgia during the summer. All you can do is hope 
that the wind would blow. God must do it. Nicodemus can't see the kingdom because he sees the signs. Nicodemus can only see the kingdom if God has moved in him. Everything that we do, brothers and sisters, if we are believers, can only be done by the Spirit of God. There is nothing in us that we can hand to God. Just as a side note, I, I'm so excited about next week because I'm going to be preaching an overview of 1 John. How do we know that we've been born of God? But the purpose of this passage is to explain that you can't understand that if you're not born of God. And I feel that far too often, it's so easy to hand evidences of being born again to somebody who has not been born again. We love one another. We love people. But Christ's response to Nicodemus, the most religious man, the, the example of religion, was, his response was not, here are some evidences of being born again, go home and think about it. His rebuke to Nicodemus was, if you're not born again, you won't understand any of those things. We're not omniscient. We're not called to start weeding each other out but we are called to recognize the weight of this reality. That if you are not a new creature, if you don't have a new heart, if you're not born of God, if God has not moved on you, you can try to apply those evidences of salvation. And you can force yourself to love certain things and to do certain things. But that in and of itself does not guarantee that you have been born of God. Only the Spirit of God can move on you in such a way to make you a new creation. And in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? His whole point to Nicodemus is, first of all, that you've been called the teacher in Israel. You're the famous guy who's been teaching the Old Testament probably more than half of your life. This is an indictment to Nicodemus for not knowing his Bible. If you would, turn to Ezekiel 36. The whole context of our conversation this morning revolves around chapter 36 and chapter 37, which we read at the beginning of the service. Chapter 36 would have been very heavy in the mind of Nicodemus because this told of the future salvation of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of God. 
And in chapter 36, in verse 25, it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. What's this sprinkling he's talking about? He's quoting numbers. Sometimes whenever we look at John and we go back to Ezekiel, it's easy to stop at Ezekiel. But what Ezekiel is doing is he's pulling from the ceremonial law. He's saying this symbolic washing that is done to cleanse Israelites, to make them clean before God, that's the illustration I'm going to use to explain the spiritual work that I'm going to do in them, much like John's use of water in chapter 3. Verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. Do you see all of the I wills? The only you will is at the end of this process. And it's not the cause, it's the result. He says, I will cleanse you in verse 25. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in verse 26. I will put my spirit within you. And even in 27, cause you to walk in my statutes. And what's the result? You'll be careful to do my judgments. In this process, God is the one who works on an individual. It's not the individual coming to God and making an agreement with God. It's not the individual saying, well, if, if I believe, and if I hand you this, if I hand you my believe card, then you can give me the Spirit. End of chapter 2, right? Many believed in his name, but he didn't entrust himself to them. And in chapter 37, there's a wind that blows over the dry bones from God. There's a wind that blows over the bones, man that had returned to dust, man that first had the breath of life from God breathed into him. Now dry bones in the dust, the breath of God breathes on those bones again, creates man, breathes into man, and man lives. And this is the new covenant. And in John chapter 3, Jesus indicts Nicodemus because he should have known that. As the teacher in Israel, that is the passage of Scripture for future hope in what God was going to do with his people. That he was going to cause them to be saved. That he was going to save them. And Jesus says, in verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he makes it personal. This isn't just a national thing. This is an individual thing. He singles out Nicodemus and he says, like he does in verse 10, you're the teacher of Israel. You have all this fame. You have all this success. You have all of, all of these things that you want to hand to God in, in an effort to achieve your salvation and your entrance into the kingdom. 
But you, Nicodemus, must be born again. The wind blows. You can't predict it. You don't know where it came from and where it's going to go. Wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word in Greek and Hebrew. And he's playing on words. And he's pointing back to that Ezekiel context. The wind blew over the bones. The bones didn't cause the wind to blow. The bones didn't beg the Spirit of God enough to give them new life. God did it. And the second indictment of Jesus in verse 11, he says, We speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, he's somewhat mocking what Nicodemus had said to him earlier. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. He's talking about the Pharisees. We know these things. We know that you're from God as a teacher. We know the signs that we're seeing is, are of the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, our Lord says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. Just like Nicodemus couldn't see the kingdom, neither could he know truly that Jesus had been from God. Jesus is saying, we actually know. Me, John the Baptist, my disciples, by implication the church, we know these things. We've seen them. And Nicodemus does not accept them. And to end this conversation with Nicodemus in verse 12, he says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he stops there. He says, If you can't understand that, if you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand that God has to be the one to move on an individual, why would I proceed to tell you heavenly things? If the root of the issue is not fixed, why would I try to fix its fruits? If your heart is not changed, why would I try to change your behaviors? If you don't truly believe Nicodemus, why would I try to give you a way into the kingdom that doesn't have to do with believing? If you can't start over, if you can't depend on God to do the work in you, but feel it's necessary to bring your own work, why would I explain the kingdom to you? Why would I explain what it looks like when it's coming? what God is going to do. It's amazing to me that he calls this an earthly thing. That's pointing to the reality that man needing God to move on him is completely necessary and obvious. Man in his own condition obviously recognizes that he's not capable of perfection. We before Christ understood that we were trapped in our sin. 
no matter the promise we made to God, we understood that no matter how hard we tried, give it a week, give it two weeks, give it a couple years, our desires would be the same as they were when they started. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, I fear that we often try to handle our sanctification before we truly understand our justification. I fear that we try to give to men ways to be better, ways to be more holy, before we truly get down to the root of the issue, which is, are they born again? Because today, we, we somewhat have this oversaturation of the gospel. Many people in Southern America know the gospel. Many people hear messages preached on, you need to live a holy life. You need to do this. You don't need to do that. And many people successfully obey that. They abstain. They don't do this. They don't do that. But the missing foundation of it all is have they been born of God? To Nicodemus, one who believed in Christ, one who did all the works, one who was holier than all of the people around him. He had the right doctrine. The issue for him was not something else he needed to learn, not something else he needed to do, not something else he needed to pray about or think about. The issue for Nicodemus was, has God done it in you? Because in our sin, we are capable of nothing. We can't hand anything to God. But I'm not preaching to unbelievers. I'm not cre preaching to a crowd of unbelievers. I don't know your heart, but I know you're part of our church. And I hope the best in you that you are a believer. And so as believers, we rejoice because verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3, as we've understood this earthly thing, as we've been made new creations, we understand the means by which God did this. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Whoever has been born of God, whoever God has moved upon, whoever God has completely gutted out and put a new heart into, has done so by the gospel. Whenever we were saved, whenever we were justified, we heard the gospel and we were attracted to it. We heard the gospel. We confessed our sins to God, but knew that we desired that sin to be covered. We knew that before we wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with His Word. We couldn't overcome our sin. 
but after God had given us a new heart, given us His Spirit. And upon hearing that gospel in that moment, we believed in Jesus Christ, truly believed in Him. And because of that, we have eternal life. So my encouragement today is not to send you home questioning, doubting your salvation. I would never want that for any believer. But like I said before, we need to understand what is the new birth before we understand what it looks like. We need to understand Jesus' first step before we understand what John would later do for those who had been born of God. And so today, if you see that God has created a new creature in you with new desires, with new loves, new passions, not perfect, but if you see that work not two years ago, not ten years ago, not 50 years ago, but if you see that work today, because it continues every day, if you see that work today, Rejoice that the wind decided to blow upon you. That in the mystery of God, He chose you for salvation when He did. That it had nothing to do with you, but that in His sovereignty, He came and He regenerated you. He gave you a new heart with new desires. And you did nothing. And upon that, you believed in the gospel. You saw that Christ's blood applied to you. That he died in your place. And now you are loving God. Desiring his word. Feeding on his word as if it were food. Loving the community of believers who've experienced the same around you. Desiring to be with his church. And we have much to rejoice in. If you find yourself lacking, if you find yourself perpetually frustrated with your sin, Christians aren't perfect, we sin. But if you find yourself utterly unable to reject the sin that you once knew, that you still know, Do not fool yourself. Because the last thing you want to do is to try and apply evidences of being born again to you and deceive yourself into thinking God has done something on you when you're the one doing it. Imagine if Jesus had told Nicodemus, well, well, you seem to care about me. You believe in me as a teacher from God. Here are some things you can do. Go home and do this and you'll be saved. Go home and think and try to apply these things and you'll be saved. He's handing he would be handing Nicodemus a totally different card. He'd be saying to a Pharisee who's achieved his righteousness all his life, go home and achieve more. And I do not want to do that next week. And if you would turn to 1 John really quick. 
chapter 5, verse 13. This is how he concludes the book, and he explains his purpose. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote this to those who had been born of God, not so that he would be redundant, but so that they would be encouraged that they truly see the work of the Spirit of God in their life. So I'm excited for next week. I'm excited to see all the encouragement John has for us in 1 John as he kind of explains this more. And most of all, I am greatly privileged and encouraged to not only know myself, but many here who have been born of God, and that by his providence and sovereignty he has drawn us all together to the praise of his name.